Welcome back. This is episode 73 of Herbological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. This week, um, well, we're back after a wee, a wee sort of gap, uh, which, what caused that? Fieldwork, pretty much, is, is the general explanation, correct? Yeah, fieldwork and just sort of... Um... Being a little bit shocked at a return to some sense of normalcy after COVID, I think. Yeah, a lot of things uh, to catch up on, a lot of things to to sort of deal with and keep on top of. So that that's all it was. But we're back now. We're going to be smashing we've... out some episodes now. Yeah, but you say that every time we come back. After yeah, but a break, I mean and then it, it's ben. like two episodes I mean and then oh, there's some God, sort I'm of ready. delay. I'm ready because um, <laughs> I've had a holiday cancelled. I'm supposed to be on holiday this week, so I'm kind of thinking. Well, I'm going to just do things I like doing. And one of the things I like doing is podcasting. So I thought, uh, yeah, we'll get, we'll, I get, see. we'll get a little bit of little bit of Ben. We'll get him online. We'll do an episode. It doesn't take much. A simple message. Ben's on board. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I reckon I reckon we might be able to squeeze in another one this week. <laughs> so, Ew, haven't asked hey, you, it's, it's, haven't asked it's you pos- yet. No, I mean, to be fair, it's, it's possible. Some yeah. deadlines have been dealt with uh, late last week, so... Hey, you never know. That's good. I like that. I like that. I like that positivity, positive mental attitude that you consistently bring. And uh, yeah, I reckon we can can bosh out another one. But for this episode, focusing on the here and now, we're talking about lizards of the night. Night lizards. Yeah. Have you, did you look up pictures of these guys? Yeah, they're cool. I like them. They are built. They are sturdy little lizards. They are. They're little sort of. They just look ready for anything. That's how I would describe yeah. them. Yeah. And I think that kind of um, suits them in a way because they are kind of, you know, they'll eat many different things. But yeah, they're sort of quite heavily bodied. I don't know. They look like a miniature tegu or something. Yeah, that sort of block, squared off head, back of the head sort of shape, hefty neck. Yeah. I can see that. It looks like if one of these lizards bit you, it would really suck. True. (laughs) True. Because they've got those huge jaws. Big jowls. All the better to bite you with. Yeah. I mean, you need big... I guess that's all part of of living in a harsh environment. Is it not? I would imagine, yeah. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, they're just... They're just built. They're just bruisers. Um... So this episode, it's a Patreon episode, isn't it, for Max McLaren? Mm-hmm. So yes. first of all, shout out to Max. Thank you very much. And Max, one of the things that Max was after was an episode on San Zan Tusaday. We're going to go for Zan Tusaday. And so this is a family of lizards containing around 35 species in three genera. And it's quite nice, actually. It's probably one of the most sort of like straightforward taxonomic sort of stories you could ever have there's three genera and they're divided by where they are so if you're looking at xanthusia as we are in this paper they are from the southwestern north america <laughs> they are from the southwestern north america and also <laughs> uh baja it's pronounced baja california isn't it uh that's the only way i've heard it pronounced it's written badger california so i mean i, I never want i never want to say yes when it comes to pronunciations because i'm particularly bad at them but that is how i've heard it said we're gonna go for baja california and um some of these 
Californian islands. So that's the genus Santusia that we're going to be talking about. And then there's another genus, Cricosauria, in Cuba, which is just the Cuban night animal. That's it. And there's another genus, Lepidophyma, which is full of species, and that's in Central America. There's 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 an animal which is not on a no list, which is a night lizard. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, so they as a compromise yes. they called it the Cuban night animal. <laughs> I, I don't mind that. I don't know I don't know their back history, but that lizard is really weird looking. It looks like it's made out of clay. It's strange. They've got huge <laughs> eyes. I don't trust you, them. What were you saying about this being a, a very simple and tidy taxonomic sort of setup here? Ah, yeah. So basically you get one genus in each of the kind of regions in which the okay. family is found. Which, you know, that makes it reasonably straightforward. But anyway, we're only going to be discussing one of these North American species, and that is Xantusia reversiana, or Xantusia reversiana, a.k.a. the Island Night Lizard, so named because it lives on islands. And this lizard grows to be between 7 and 10 centimetres snout to vent length, so excluding the tail. It's omnivorous. It'll pretty much happily munch on most things, but it particularly enjoys invertebrates. It will, in, it will eat some plants, which is weird for such a small lizard. Um, and they're mostly active during the day, despite being called night lizards. And they can be considered a sedentary species. So, Lazy. Yeah, much like much like much of humankind, is <laughs> a sedentary creature with a very small home range of approximately 17 metres squared in some places. So, yeah, that's not far at all to be going. And they seem 17 quite... metres squared. I'm just trying to picture that in the context of where I'm living. Um, it's probably the size of this room. <laughs> yeah. I.e. the entirety. <laughs> <laughs> well, your range is about 17 metres squared on some days then. <laughs> Uh, pretty much, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, a brief <laughs> foray out for water. Dinner. Yeah, <laughs> nice little cup of tea. Um, and yeah, this is a species which is endemic to three islands off California. It's found only on these southern Channel Islands, and we're going to be focusing specifically on the lizards on San Nicolas Island, which is actually the most isolated and remote of the three islands. But don't be fooled into thinking that isolation has meant these little island night lizards could exist in peace. Because no, no, no. Humankind had other plans. And they've actually had life made pretty tricky through the introduction of some non-native species. Principally sheep. Um, around 15,000 sheep grazed this island at one time. Um, starting in the kind of late 1800s. And along with the sheep, there was also cats, goats, and introduced grass species. And now there's actually no native trees remaining on the island. Because of the sheep and also because of drought, the west side of the island is actually now largely a desert on San Nicolas Island, which is not suitable for these lizards. But there is some good habitat for the lizards remaining. There's like chunks of good habitat where cactus, boxthorn... And other spiky plants are still present. These lizards love living in these like spiky plants. And yeah, the US Navy took over this island, San Nicolas, in 1940. They got rid of the sheep. And since then, the lizards have been doing a little bit better. And they've been studied since 1984. 
and they were recently taken off. They used to be it used to be the case that they were considered threatened by uh, the United States. The Fish and Wildlife Service had them listed as a threatened species, which is like their kind of the USA's native species listings because of mm-hmm. its restri- restricted range and low population levels. But um, that's actually no longer the case, right? They um, yeah. Yeah, after after they got rid of the sheep and and introduced predators, no longer threatened. Yeah, which is pretty nice. I mean, that's good. That's pretty chill. But the authors of this paper were kind of of the impression that actually, while it seemed the lizards were doing well, it's important to check things a little bit more deeply because of the past pressures the island has faced. And they were actually fearful that the lizard has undergone some reduction in their genetic potential and there might not be enough mixing going on between these isolated populations to keep the population at large healthy. And so yeah. in this was, paper they go on. Sorry, I was just gonna, I just wanted to bring up this idea of like zombie populations. These these Yeah uh you hear about it a lot with very long-lived species uh turtles and that lot where you have a population that exists but there is not sufficient individuals to to maintain that population in the long run so okay right now it looks okay you've got enough individual you look to have enough individuals but they don't have the capacity to actually keep that population sustainable over the long run be that uh because of the isolation so individuals can't get to each other or because of this uh, very limited genetic pool, so you actually have a sort of effectively have a smaller population than what you what you appear to have. That ties into the idea of extinction debt, doesn't it? Which right, is a horrible right. bit of phraseology which we learnt about at uni, which is where basically you've done all these things to the environment, be it logging or whatever. Um, you know, some sort of horrible things have happened, which have led to a change and the species which are living in that environment are on a one-way street to destruction and doom but there's still a few surviving that you can see and yeah, yeah they so say, it looks like they're still there but really <laughs> they're ghosts. You know, they're, they are the ghosts yeah of, yeah of a population already already doomed and that's the extinction debt that has to be paid to the yeah. extinction piper yeah but you know, the whole point of this paper was like, okay, cool. Well, we seem to have done something to protect these lizards. Fair play, you know, credit where credit's due. Exterminate the sheep. Maybe exterminate is not the word, but the sheep, the sheep are gone. And they wanted to see, okay, now everything's a little bit more chill for the lizards on this island. Is it actually the case that they've got healthy populations that are going to continue? Or do we need to start thinking about some management strategies to encourage some mixture of these small populations try mm-hmm. and get the best genetic potential that we can and yeah that was the goal of this study they used what, a bunch of different different methods what are you going to say i was going to say what sort of strategies would there be to boost genetic diversity in this sort of context like uh moving individuals between populations i would yeah that be- so that that's exactly the kind of thing that you could see that they would do you know like some of those um there's some of those papers on adders, aren't there, where they get moved into a different island in order to try and sort of increase the genetic yes. potential. Um, so, yeah, that's basically, I think, what they tend to do is, like, translocate individuals. I think they'd probably prefer to do it with other individuals from this island, if possible. Um, and then I guess if they considered the population to be so heavily sort of depleted that they needed to get individuals from another island that would be kind of a a second choice Mm -hmm. 
Okay, yeah. So just basically boosting boosting mixing either by deliberate um, translocation of animals or trying to boost connectivity between uh, disparate populations. Yeah, and that could either be done in the wild or in captivity. I guess if you're in captivity and you took individuals from disparate regions and put them together and then you know you'd have a little stock of more diverse ones perhaps to let go but you know those are those are considerations for one step beyond this paper which is where the problem has actually been identified and so what they did was they took genetic samples from a bunch of lizards from a bunch of these populations so they had eight small populations which are separated all over the island one not many not much in the west though because as we said the west is largely desert but yeah they took yeah, samples one, from these po- what one remaining population over in the west right on the very coast <laughs> yeah it's like on the beach i think there's like a little yeah sort of sect of beach lizards that are just you know they're probably the most Hanging radical on. ones yeah they're just kind of getting by where there's like a load of old wood and planks and stuff scattered around they like to live under those um but yeah, so they took all these genetic samples and they had a look at the DNA of these species. And what they were looking for was to see how much diversity there was in each of these kind of pockets where they were found. And interestingly, what they found was that there were actually high levels of diversity in the small population. So even in populations that were relatively few lizards. So the number of an individuals making up the effective population size, so that's how many are actually adult size and can breed, ranged from about 25 to 113. So they're quite small little isolated populations on this island. But what they found was that there was a lot of diversity in these tiny populations. But beyond that, there was actually a lot of diversity between the populations as well. So they've got this kind of strange scenario where despite these lizards being in these tiny isolated populations they've actually managed to maintain high levels of diversity and they're diverse between them so that could that could be good that could be bad it could be that okay they've all been isolated unnaturally for too long and so they've kind of diverged to a, a point where you know i mean it seems like a good thing basically but it's okay as long as you've got some admixture some mixture between these populations still ongoing otherwise you're just going to end up right. with a situation where each tiny population is just kind of diverging and diverging and diverging and if there isn't that mixture they will eventually get to a point where they are, they have reached a bottleneck but they did actually crucially find that there was evidence to suggest occasional gene flow between these populations which is surprising because the areas between them and we've said these are sedentary lizards with quite small home ranges but the areas between the populations is relatively large on the scale of what these lizards would normally do and yet yeah, some, of the, still... some of the smaller ones were less than 500 meters but 500 meters for a lizard which spends i mean i don't i haven't seen that home range study so maybe their sampling was quite limited but even so 17 meters squared to 500 in, in terms way. of linear distance, it's, it's quite a it's quite a leap. Yeah. Um, but of course, there may be that's you know, between their sampled populations. There, of course, are going to be uh, individuals between those sampling locations. So it might be a steadier gradient than uh, than reflected in the sampling. Right. I feel like yes. that's, that's that's possible. That is possible. But also, I think another interesting point that they raise, and I think there was a paper that evidenced this, is that. Animals which are, I think, what they're kind of, the point they're trying to make is that, like, sometimes you can underestimate what an animal would be willing to do based on how it behaves in its home range. Like, 
if this is a lizard, True. which is like, okay, I'm going to go out. For some reason, this lizard's got the urge, right? It's got the urge to go. And it's like, I'm going to move to another bit of habitat. What's it going to do? Okay, it's going to set off. And then it's going to keep going until it finds good habitat, right? It's not going to stop in some really poor habitat unless it's like mm-hmm. really stuck. And so they make the point that actually when you, when an animal has to traverse a lot of unsuitable terrain to get to new good habitat, it might well be the case that that motivates it to go further than if it was crossing suitable habitat where it would probably just reach a distant enough place, you know, I guess as soon as it sort of finds food or escapes from the territorial not very nice lizard that it's been led to move by it's going to sort of stop yes. and find a new place to live whereas if it's kind of just crossing what is essentially a desert it's going to keep going until it finds that good habitat that it requires yeah it all gets a little bit bit messy trying to sort of second guess that stuff though it does because it you does. have this um this idea of boundary avoidance for species too so if they've evolved in uh areas that have quite homogeneous habitat, they may not have a good understanding of this sort of evolutionary predisposition to avoid boundaries. So they'll they'll just, um, in very simple terms and probably not very accurate terms, uh, they don't understand the implications of crossing from one habitat type to another. So if they've lived in homogeneous, they're just going to go and keep on going. With species who evolved in quite uh, patchy habitat, can have a better recognition that going into a different habitat, breaking out of suitable into a sort of more inhospitable, dangerous uh, habitat might have higher costs and therefore they'll be less likely to do it. Yeah. And yeah. so there's a lot of, I guess, momentum. We talk about evolutionary momentum quite a lot, but there's definitely some of that in how animals will react to bad habitat and how willing they will be to enter it, push through it, in, in addition to just how far they can move physically while still, you know, surviving. Yeah. So, yes, I think that, I think they make a, a, a good point um, that once you, once you get into bad habitat, you might be incentivized to keep going further, but there is that additional how motivated are they or, or what's the push for them to leave to begin with. Yeah. Uh, I think... So it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah. I think the key thing they're saying is like, basically this mixture is happening but it's rare so you know occasionally a Mm -hmm. lizard will despite what you might expect go quite a long way in order to find a new habitat and uh yeah they say it's rare you know it's the kind of thing which you could study this population for well probably since 1984 do a mark recapture and never find evidence of a lizard doing a move like this but you look at the genetic information and sure enough there's some mixture going on at some at some level so it is there I think that's the real interesting aspect of the genetics here is that's collecting or, or detecting something that would be quite difficult to uh, to get just by studying individual lizards because you've got to wait for that really unlikely um, occurrence. Exactly. But, yeah, it, it must be happening to some extent. Yeah, precisely. I'm just looking at that home range study now just to uh, just to gauge movements. Here we go. 85% of the lizards were captured in their original put- pitfall trap. That's, there you go. Majority of lizards did not move, were recaptured in only one other trap. So 85 in the same trap, 87 in only a couple of traps. Uh, so tiny, tiny percentages, like less than 10% were found in more than two traps. 
When you find that prickly pear, though, you know it's right, don't you? I, I mean, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tiny moves, too. These, these traps are only, like, average distance moved was 5 metres plus. So, five five point six. So yeah, uh, it's it's no no telemetry study or, or like uh, spool tracking. It is a capture recapture stuff, but very small movements. But that being said, capture recapture stuff you'll get. Okay, they've got a small range, but that doesn't really. They could be moving a lot within that range, I guess. But, yeah, yeah, they could be. And I mean, if they're like in. If they're sitting around in spiky bushes eating uh, insects, they probably can be relatively active in a small area. I don't know. I'm not sure what their sort of hunting strategy is. Strange. They said the average was 17 metres squared, correct? Yeah. But we've got what seems to be... Okay, but we've got some which range up to 3,000 metres squared. (laughs) Suddenly... Well, exactly. Suddenly, suddenly, everything changes context, doesn't it? That's that's the downside of reporting a mean, I suppose. Um, I mean, I'm I'm just going by their figure. So basically, they have number of locations, add area square meters up the uh, y, multiple lines for multiple individuals, seven individuals. Uh, the maximum had a hundred locations recorded for it. Uh, they got little radioactive tags. Apparently, this is. Figure twenty-one, <laughs> very deep, deep in the paper, but it's there, and there is there is an individual. In fact, there's two individuals that have ranges over two hundred uh, two thousand five hundred meters squared. Um, a couple, sort of one thousand seven hundred fifty. Well, there you go. In fact, I'm I'm having a difficult time working out where this seventeen meters comes from. When we travelled an average different the greatest distance moved was eighteen meters over a one year period. Are the units wrong? Is it meant to be square centimeters? Because that would make more sense. I am bamboozled by this stabilization of calculated home range uh figure because I feel like the scale is is incorrect. And it should be I think it's been times by times by a hundred. I think it's it's square centimetres, but they say it's square metres. Because then the table is reporting home range in square metres, and all those numbers tally up with the figure, but the figure's in square, allegedly in square metres, but it looks to be in, in square centimetres. I think that's all it is. Still, the biggest one is, tw- is 30 uh, metres squared. 29 metres squared, sorry. I see what you're looking at. Yeah, they've got it wrong, haven't they? I think so. I think it's literally just missing a C. Or it's had yeah. a, a couple of zeros well, had, added on. Yeah, they've added two zeros. Yeah, very easily done. Yeah. That's um, very confusing, though, because like you say, if you look at that at a glance, you're like, what? Right, this it's only, got... okay, the movements are, this makes much more sense for <laughs> these lizards going between populations. Suddenly it's obvious got... that they would have yeah. good levels of genetic diversity because they range right. over many thousands of meters. But actually, no, <laughs> that's not the case. No, no, I don't think so. Eagle eye, mate. Eagle eye. You should have been editing herpetological monographs back in, what, 1980? Where are we? 1991. 1991, excuse me. Fantastic year, 1991. I am never going to edit herpetological monographs. (laughs) Never, Never say, hey, never say never, Ben. Never say never. Never say never. Oh, I will say never. You could have had this paper down to 40 pages. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Oof. 
Okay, now we shouldn't poke fun at science of old. So, there we can. But that is the tome. You know, that is the Bible. If you're interested in the Santissima Reversiana still, I would imagine, this paper. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some really good stuff in there. My only issue with herpological monographs is how difficult it is to find the piece of information you're particularly looking for a lot of the time. Yeah. Gosh, we are lucky to have uh, Control F in our lives. Yes, but if it's too old, then it's not OCR'd and you can't even do that. <laughs> but I don't know, Ben. I kind of feel like you're railing against the very idea behind a monologue more than you're railing against that. Because, like, you know, a monologue, a monograph, sorry, a monologue, a monograph is a detailed written study of a single specialised subject. So, so maybe that's, maybe it's exactly as intended. <laughs> but to our, to our modern tastes, you know. You're probably used to just flicking across Mate, on Instagram. If it's longer and all that. than a tweet, I'm not going to read it. <laughs> yeah, it's longer than a hundred characters. Yeah, get out of my yeah. face. Yeah, I, I need my results in a single sentence, punched to the face. And I don't. If there's no emojis or gifs, forget it. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Why write out the word lizard when you can just put a picture of a lizard? <laughs> Hieroglyphics. <laughs> yep. Anyway, we've, we've become incredibly sidetracked. Um, yeah, I think it's good, though, because um, the point of the paper really is that actually, despite everything that humans have done to try and destroy this lizard, they are seemingly managing to maintain on. good levels yeah. of diversity. They end the paper by saying, overall, our results reveal a pattern of highly sedentary lizards, which rarely disperse through unsuitable habitat. We found high divergence between sites, even at small spatial distances, but also high diversity within sites, which is great. They're actually not too bad. And they've got a really good little section on the management of this lizard and how, what they've found out. Because there is ongoing conservation efforts to help this um, island night lizard. There's some planting of prickly pears and box thorns going on. Um, groups of volunteers are doing good work. And so what they suggest is that rather than increasing the size of existing patches of habitat, which seemingly are already supporting, albeit small but healthy populations of lizards, they would be better to try and restore habitat in areas away from existing patches. So try and mm-hmm. create new patches. And if they create new patches away from the existing ones, not only will there be more areas where they can kind of have hotspots of lizards, you know, more sites is kind of better for conservation because they can just exist as a separate kind of unit. But also the new sites might be stepping stones for the lizards to travel between sites and make those long migrations that are required since the habitat's deteriorated a little bit less long and facilitate that mixing, which is essential to the continuation of the species. Yeah, I like that as a as a goal too, because you're sort of entrusting the ecosystem to do its job as long as you give it space. And I think that's that makes a lot of sense. Because you're not that... trying to actively micromanage these these lizard populations. It is give them space, take away the direct threats to them, and thankfully, because of this study, we know that there's enough genetic diversity for them to sort of get on with it themselves. Should be cheaper that way too, really. Yeah, cheaper, better. Yeah. So there we go, the island night lizard. Yeah. Xanthusia reversiana. Yeah, so good news Good news for some little island-dwelling night lizards. So we mentioned in there this, this idea of home range, right? And Indeed. how 
in the context of night lizards, that was quite an important idea or concept to have that bit of information to give a bit of context to genetic data, right? The sort of second half of this podcast, we're going to shift gears a little bit and move a little bit more into method stuff, right? One of one of the one of the requests is field field methods and that that's correct. sort of thing. Yes, correct. Yeah, yes, that's right. And actually, we thought, what better thing to discuss? Because actually, um, you know, that's pretty vague. There's lots of different elements to um, field sort of uh, endeavor when it comes to reptiles. But you have got a paper upcoming, which is pretty awesome, I have to say. And yeah, it's all about methods that we use to calculate the home range sizes of animals particularly reptiles and how despite kind of a little bit of a revolution going on in the way these things are done that revolution hasn't necessarily yet extended to um, reptiles and there's still a lot of kind of more traditional methods being used which perhaps aren't as good as they have historically thought to have been So, uh, yeah, the second paper that we are going to be doing is entitled Revisiting Reptile Home Ranges, Moving Beyond Traditional Estimators with Dynamic Brownian Bridge Movement Models. And can we say this is in prep or is this in this has been reviewed? Uh, This has been this has gone through one round of review uh, so far. The initial preprint is available uh, for people on BioArchive. So there is a version publicly available. It's no, it, it's yeah. So I, I guess it's still in review. Basically, we've done one round and and resubmitted revisions, and we'll see how that goes. Right on. And this is by Silver Crane, Marshall, and Strine, and obviously upcoming. And can you say where it's been reviewed, or is that like? Uh, can we say where it's been reviewed? Not sure about that one. I mean, I have absolutely no problem with that, but whether. The powers that be do. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, suffice- considering considering the journal accepts preprints to be submitted, I don't see there being. Anyway, whatever. I'm going to take the risk. Um, movement ecology. Movement is where ecology. It's We're review. taking a punt. Movement ecology, and I mean, what what a fitting home for such a paper, I have to say, and. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you say this is a paper. Before we get into it, I'm just curious. You said this is a journal that accepts preprints. Presumably, that factored into your decision to send your paper here. Uh, yeah. If they didn't, we wouldn't have like wouldn't have sent it. <laughs> and, as simple as that. And what percentage of journals do you think actually accepts sort of these? Oh we've, my gosh! We've talked about preprints on the podcast before. It's an opportunity for uh, scientists, and you know in any field to get their work online and have it kind of um, pre-peer reviewed basically, isn't it? It's just an yeah, opportunity community, for... community peer review is yeah. the, the idea behind it um, while also enabling... It's, it's meant to enable a faster communication of ideas and a more open scientific environment. Um, there are definitely... Uh, it's definitely not perfect because the fact that these things haven't been peer reviewed, the quality is up to the reader to discern um so reading a preprint you do have to take a greater sort of responsibility on your shoulders and a greater critical eye when reading them but at the same time there's been some pretty high flying failures of peer review 
relatively recently too. So it's not like, right, it's peer-reviewed, everything's fine. So in that sense, uh, preprints are only doing a good thing, just speeding up stuff getting out. And, you know, peer review is not this uh, silver bullet. Yes, it's very useful. Yes, it's the sort of best system we have right now, but it is not... It's no reason to dismiss preprints, but equally is no reason to blindly trust peer-reviewed stuff. Basically, everything's grey is what I'm getting at. And no matter what you're reading, where you're reading it, don't take it on face value. Yes, use cues to sort of help you along and maybe take some shortcuts, but don't let where you're reading something be the be-all and end-all. Yeah. Be that preprint or not preprint. So. Yeah. I think uh, everything is grey, except the optimism we can feel when new methods make the understanding of reptiles exciting so well hopefully (laughs) one of the first things in this one of the first lines that you read is that recent technological advances have enabled 17 new methods for home range estimation but haven't really been targeting reptiles they've been predominantly used in mammals and studies of birds and so yeah ben like previously as we've talked about on the podcast people have been using kernel density estimators and minimum convex polygons in order to work out the home range sizes of reptiles using uh, telemetry data. So data from radio tags, which are either on or in the animal, which you then track down using an antenna receiver, you get a GPS location and you tie those all together, all those series of GPS locations to try and create an idea of what size of range and what area the animal inhabits and previously the methods have been like I said minimum convex polygon which is essentially you just draw a line around all the points isn't it it's, it's pretty much a box around the the idea is um so it, it does have one uh like limit well not limitation but one um it's not a strict box around it like you don't fall it's not uh, joining the dots or anything like that uh angles have to be convex as suggested by the name. So it is uh, quite a blocky polygon around the area, but it is just that. It's as simple as it sounds. It is how you calculate area for a lot of things, just boop, over the top, job done. Yeah, it's, it's conceptually simple, isn't it? It's not very hard to understand, no. but that doesn't necessarily mean it's particularly useful either. One of the main issues with it, let's say you have a range which is sort of U-shaped, or something like that, or the animal has an area in the center of its range it doesn't really use. MCP is not going to be able to pick that up or even come close to understanding it. It's just going to build a big polygon around the whole points, all the points, or, you know, 95% of them, whatever you choose. And it will include all the areas in between the points, regardless of how the animal moved. If you've got quite a homogenous range that they're using all, all relatively similarly, uh, okay, maybe MCP's going to be relatively close to the truth, but the chances are it's going to be including big areas, or certainly decent size areas, where the animal's never been. Yeah. It, it is a very blunt instrument in that sense. And then the other popular method is this kernel density estimation, which is, to my mind, a little more sophisticated, but... Yes. It's nevertheless flawed, right? Like, from my understanding, and through reading this paper... Um, one of the problems that kernel density estimates, which kind of give you a better idea of like hotspots of usage, right? They kind of... Yeah, yeah. It's not just like a polygon that's like one big sort of blocky thing. It's like a little bit more nuanced, right. generally speaking, right? 
Yeah, so it's it's taking into account um, the relative position of these points and how how many there are to try and come up with like a, I guess a heat map is probably the best term to describe what the kernels are doing. It's just generating this heat map of where the locations are, and then you can sort of turn it into a range by saying, okay, we we think a range is where the animal has spent ninety five percent of its time or ninety nine percent of its time, and so you can cover all the areas that have that 95%, there you go, there's your there's your range, uh, there's your home range uh, limit or boundary. Right. Yeah, so it, it, it is more sophisticated. The main issue, well, there's two main issues with it. One is it doesn't really take into account how these points are interrelated. It's assuming that an animal, the way the, the, the kernels are generated is sort of assumes the animal can be anywhere at any time. <laughs> but we know that unless you've got an animal that can teleport, that that's never the case. Yeah. You know, an animal has to move from point A to point B, and there is this sort of inherent uh, connection to a previous point, right? So if an animal starts at point A, point B is more likely to be closer to point A than it is to, you know, the far end of its home range. And right. kernels don't have that knowledge. They don't recognize how these points are interrelated. Right. And the other problem it's, from yeah. reading this is that um, when you have an animal which stops and stays in the same place for successive time points, that can be a big problem for kernel density estimates. Yes, it, it doesn't understand time. It is just working by number of points and where these points are relative to each other. And the reason this... Let's say you've got a, a a python or some sort of big animal that's that's taking a big meal. It's going to sit down and chill out in the same location for, for a week, for like a week. Yeah, yeah, easy a week. Um, and you come back every day and you're recording your your data. You're going to have lots of points all on the same location. Okay, that's fine. That's important information, right? That's that's telling you the animal has stayed in that location for a long period of time, indicating that that might be an important shelter site or something like that. That is important information but it messes with the way kernels are operating because it's going to uh, basically you've got lots of points in one location so it can mess with how the kernel is calculated outside of that and can sort of almost tight it tighten the the home range too tightly around those points or basically without understanding that time these these repeated locations can can cause issues yeah that's it that's it um but you throw on top of that this this extra issue with kernel density estimators that you can't so there's this smoothing factor you have to give them when they're when they're being calculated and this smoothing factor basically says okay you've got one point how does the probability decrease as it as uh, you go further away from you know a known location where that animal was a very big smoothing factor it'll quite gently decrease as you go further out so it's more likely to say the animal could have been further away if you have a very small smoothing factor it will be quite tightly surrounding that location the trick comes with picking what is correct like the kernel density estimator doesn't understand how an animal moves it doesn't understand how these points are related so it's got no real way of calculating how far the animal could have gone or where it could have been when you weren't looking, you know, between these data points. The smoothing parameter is, is the number that's dealing with that, but it's got no information to really base that so on. So it's highly subjective, really. The number, 
yeah well subjective absolutely if you if you choose to do it that way or it's being estimated on the number and distribution of these points which can be completely disconnected from you know the movement capacity or how an animal is actually living that's that's the trick is it doesn't it's not what we call um uh it's it's not a movement model it's not treating it as movement data it's treating it as independent data points that are you know just randomly or you know assumed to be independent and randomly distributed in that range yeah in in what you're trying to calculate well probably not randomly because you have your hotspots but they're meant to be separate and not connected which which doesn't make any sense for tracking data because yeah. we know they are connected yeah it's like a prerequisite. It's an animal going from point A to point B. Yeah, it's yeah. A, I mean, a fundamental prerequisite for the kind of uh, modeling method to work is that, yeah, these points aren't yes. related. And of course they're related. Like, Yeah. So I think yeah. you've basically effectively set the scene there for these methods being like the best that we had, but now potentially a little bit out of date. And in come the old DBBMM. Yeah. Yeah. Dynamic Brownian Bridge Movement Models. Which so rolls off the tongue. It's actually quite a catchy name. So the, the, the idea behind this paper was to show that we don't have to rely on these very simple, um, potentially uh, subjective or um, known to be inaccurate in the case of MCPs, in a lot of cases, uh, methods. We do have alternatives. You know, herpetology has been hanging around doing kernels and MCPs for decades. And while that's been going on, there have been some pretty massive advances in... I think I think DBMMs were originally designed with with mammal data. I think, but basically bird stuff, mammal stuff, uh, some marine stuff. They've developed all sorts of methods to deal with GPS data, which you know the data is collected so quickly after each other. You've got this high resolution, you know, occasionally minute by minute data that people are like. Well, we can't just use use kernels. We can't just draw a box around this stuff because it's we're losing so much information. We've, we've spent all this money and technology collecting really high-resolution data, and we're just, you know, it breaks kernels in a lot of cases. And for an MCP, it's just a waste of waste of effort. Why you sample so frequently um, if you're not going to make use of that data? But we didn't really know how uh, dynamic Brownian bridge movement models operate when you're working with lower-resolution data, i.e. reptile data. Uh, we still can't put GPSs in snakes. The studies that have tried it or tried external attachment of GPSs to snakes have shown that they're not great. Um, you're putting a lot of weight on the animal. Uh, signal tends to have issues with uh, sheltering underground and things along those time, those sorts of things. Uh, so you okay, got to work with a smaller GPS and smaller battery life. Therefore, you're working with smaller studies. So there's still a lot of difficulties on the technology side for reptiles, you know, excluding cost as well. So you've got this this heavy reliance on radio telemetry, which is meaning people has they have to go out into the field to uh, collect the data. So the idea is, okay, we've got these new new methods designed for GPS. Can we actually use them on VHF? Is it worth the effort? Um, and that's what we wanted to wanted to do here. Essentially, is uh, to see if we could help uh, or, or sort of check whether current field methods are compatible with more interesting uh, movement model techniques, which have been you know developed for GPS. Yeah, that's 
That's the idea. And uh, I think it was cool as well because you're focusing on, you've simulated data here, which represents three different kind of, they're not specific species, but kind of three different life styles of reptiles and yeah it's yeah it's good because that allows you to mimic what you know what actual data is going to look like and therefore you can actually start to check that these uh, dbbmms actually can sort of counter the problems which face you know for example kernel density estimates so you've got these three different simulated species one being a highly mobile active hunter like for example a king cobra you've got this second species which is the ambush foragers so long some long distance moves but mostly and but also sheltering for long periods so that's something like a python and then you've got these smaller ambush predators which move infrequently they're generally quite sort of sedentary and they shelter for short periods so that's like vipers and yeah so we've got this idea of big meals small meals sort of thing going on yeah but the crucial yeah, thing yeah. i think looking at the data is that each of these species have relatively long periods where they're inactive so not just resting but actually just like you know really staying put in the case of the vipers it's like a few days right whereas for the sort of bigger um the larger pythons it's like a week um and it was a bit yeah. a bit longer for the older king cobras as well, right? Yeah, the idea was to... Like, we didn't want specific species. We originally thought, okay, great, we'll just grab a diversity of movement data and work with that. Okay, let's go looking for open access reptile data. Oh, there's like eight studies, 11 studies or something. It, it, there's just simply not enough. And more to the point, the studies are, are field studies, so tracking frequency is already inconsistent. Yeah. So it's quite hard to know or hard to manipulate that data to see the impact of what if you only tracked half as much? What if you tracked three times as much? So we, although we wanted to start with, with real data, we had to switch over to this simulated approach. So we actually had enough data to work with and also to be able to capture this diversity of reptile movement from the, the big movers to the like small viper movers. Yeah. Um, added benefit is if you're simulating data, you know the truth. You know exactly where this animal actually went because you simulated where this animal went. So you've got this lovely opportunity to test your uh, sort of uh, different field methods, i.e. in our case, uh, different frequencies of tracking against real data you know the the absolute truth of where this animal went if you were to use field data you'd never really know the true answer so you'd never know how far your your home range estimator was from the truth and that's that's that benefit of simulated data is you absolutely know everything going on in this environment yeah field data could be a little bit tricky it would only be relative error you'd never know what absolute error was so that's that was the other reason for the simulated data was I mean, to have complete control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, it's really cool. I mean, I love the figure, what is it? It's figure uh, figure two, where you've got the different simulated species and they're kind of like um, step length. So how far they're moving each day and then on what days they're moving. And it's really cool because like for the monoslezard king cobra, you know, the sort of mobile large predator you've got, it might, you know, it might move upwards of 100 meters for like 10 days 
and then it will have a week off where it's just you know chilling out digesting a meal and then again you've got another period of like high movement and then it's obviously found a meal a week off and so like you say you've got this like perfect simulation which you can then use to say okay let's test these various methods and see how close each one gets to the actual home range which we know because we've created it and yeah it allows you to produce some really cool figures like figure five where you've got the kind of comparison between the estimates produced by the dbmm uh model and then kernel dent the two types of kernel density estimate and then mcp and you can just see that the dbmm is the dbbmm is just like undeniably closer to the true range of the animal compared to either either one of the kernel density estimates or the mcp yeah that's that's the sort of idea and it's it's this balance between overestimating the range and underestimating the range. There are some that are better avoiding sort of overestimation than DBMMs, but there are those that are better avoiding that underestimation. The trick is trying to get this balance between the two so you're getting close as close as you can to truly what the animal did and truly the space that the animal was using during this time. And actually that's Something that I should bring up is we are using home range in this idea of area the animal used during the sampling period. We're not trying to do this this home range, which is the area the animal needs for its entire life. This sort of extrapolation idea for home range. It's I suppose it's a subtle difference. One is one is talking about probably more close to space use, and one is more like legacy home range, what are trying to predict the areas it would use in the future and the overall space it would require over its entire life. And I know that those terms, from our perspective, I feel like home range is often used uh, quite interchangeably in reptile literature with both of those ideas sort of merging together. 100%, yeah, 100%. Like you very, very rarely see those things uh, explicitly separated yeah you just see home range range. you just like i think it's so frequently used that people just accepting of the fact that when you say that you're like talking about the animal's life you know right right and that's whether or not largely largely it doesn't matter because you should be able to understand uh the space estimates from the context of the paper right if they're answering a question about what did the animal do during this time what habitats did it use Okay, that's you're probably treating home range more as a within the sampling period. But if you're talking about something like um, there was a recent paper about uh, mammal home range sizes scaling with uh, body mass, and that was very much an idea of how much space does this animal require? You know, how much is it going to use over its entire life? And that's that broader definition of home range. It's it gets a little bit tricky because different people use it different ways. A lot of people don't define it, as you say. And it's, I think in the reptile literature, it's gone a long way without being defined. And there's less overlap between that and some of the mammal literature that use it in a slightly different way more recently. So, yeah, just something to be aware of that DBMMs in different contexts aren't a home range as such. They can be a home range, absolutely, if you want to use the term that way. But it is a, it is a point to be aware of when you're reading stuff, 
what people mean by the it, it's it's just a slightly ambiguous term sometimes yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and so um one thing which was very prominent in this paper was um, the tracking regime that was used. Now, for anyone else, anyone listening, like the regime is how frequently you're actually going. And as Ben mentioned, you've, you know, with radio telemetry, you've got to go out there, you've got to take your antenna, you've got to listen for the beeps, and you've got to go and find the animal, right? So that is why you frequently, and I mean, a lot of the papers which um, you read, you know, they might go and find, for example, a snake. As little as once a week, sometimes as little as once a month. Um, other studies do it more frequently, you know, a couple of times a day, four times a day. And that was something which you guys obviously wanted to take into account in this paper because, you know, I mean, that's pretty fundamental to the planning of any radio telemetric investigation. It's like, right, how often are we actually going to go out and sample yeah. where these animals are? Because you, it's very labor intensive, right? And you want to kind of strike a balance between what's going to not kill you and any field assistants that there are doing the work, but also you're going to get biologically relevant data, which is going to, you know, surmount to yeah. some kind of reasonable estimate of what these animals have been doing in the time you've been studying them. And so I was very interested to see how tracking regime impacted how accurate the estimates were across all these different methods. Um, was there anything that stood out to you, Ben, that was like maybe surprising? Um, yeah, I, to be honest, what was surprising was was how well DBMMs actually dealt with really shocking tracking regimes. Over one, one every um, month, right? <laughs> yeah, because we we fully expected it to do decently up to like once a day, and then it starts collapsing. Yeah. This was designed for GPS stuff, which can be super, super frequent. Like you said, once um, every minute, once every five minutes, you know, those little, those little penguin backpacks are pinging all day. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, I don't know, we, we hoped, but we didn't expect it to remain so consistent. And actually, compared to the other methods, it's the most stable from regime to regime. So what's nice is... You've got this scenario, you've got this method which is more insensitive to your tracking regime. So basically, you can relax a little bit. Uh, okay, you, you are tracking once a day, you, you, maybe you missed a day. Okay, not, a, not too much of a big deal. Because the method is going to be less sensitive to that. Um, it also helps, let's say you're comparing the space estimates from study A to study B but one tracked once a day, one tracked twice a day. Well, the sort of relative error created by those differences in tracking regime, not as big. If you were to compare those two estimates using an MCP, okay, well then what if you had an extra 20, you know, 10, 20% error on one of the studies compared to the other? That might completely hide whatever difference there is, or it yeah. might make there look like a difference when there really isn't. So it's one of those that we were just, wow, this is actually working. And more to the point, it's going to work for a lot of reptile stuff. Yeah. Even stuff which you're talking a couple of tracks a week or even once a week, it's still your best choice. Mm -hmm. And that's that's was incredibly heartening because what we did, what didn't want to do is come in and be like, okay, this stuff is only going to work under oh, a very certain yeah. set of circumstances. It's way less it's really persuasive good. then, isn't it? But you've got to put a lot of effort in to make it work. Yeah. This is basically saying why you should never be using these older methods because even in scenarios of very coarse data, it's still going to do 
you know, it's going to do as well, if not better. So why not? Why not? I think, uh, yeah, I mean, looking at that figure four where you can see like, you know, the types of error incurred in different tracking regimes. And yeah, it is really DBMMs just out. They completely outclass the competition. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was really excited reading through this. I think uh, <laughs> this uh, it's like you say, though, because it's all well and good coming up with some a new way of trying things out and doing them. But then if, if you had to have all these caveats where it's like, yeah, OK, you can use these uh, DBBMMs and they'll like revolutionize the um, home range estimates you're getting. But you've got to track three times a day. Oh, and don't track every sixth day because that'll muck it up. You know, like. Right. Exactly. Kind of stuff. Don't, yeah. People are having a tough enough time in the field tracking these animals anyway. It's, it's hard going. It's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to come up with, hey, the amount of effort you're putting in, damn good work. But you know what you could do? A little bit more extra, sort of uh, slightly change your methods. Not really much extra effort. Uh, and you're going to get better estimates. Absolutely. So the, the cost, the the time, that sort of thing, it's thankfully much, much, much smaller. It's it's should be cheap for quite high benefits, which is great. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, certainly already there's at least one person whose tracking plans have been influenced by this paper, and I'm sure I'll be the first, well, probably not the first, actually, because this method is described elsewhere by you guys to some extent. But... Um, yeah, I think it's going to be... Uh, I certainly hope to see this a lot more frequently and it's definitely going to f- feature in my uh, my tracking methodology when I finally am allowed to put some radio tags in Escalapian snakes next spring. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's I think it's got a lot of scope to help people out and I I think what we're really emphasising... Gosh, I never even said how it, how it calculates ranges, which is a bit of a shame. Well, we'll do <laughs> quickly yeah, do that yeah, now quick, in a very key, simplified like, terms. Yeah, so it's, it's all to do with the movement paths, right? Yeah, precisely that. So uh, Brownian motion uh, and a Brownian bridge by extension is basically random movement. Yeah, so you have point A, you have point B, and basically the DBMMs run loads of random walks between these two points. And they do it again and again and again and again and again. And where those paths overlap, okay, animals more likely to have been where they are uh, fewer of them, less likely. And you get that that heat map, which you essentially get from the kernels. The trick is that it does this between every single pair of points. So you okay, you build up this this heat map based on all these different paths over the entire study period. But the really smart bit is by using the sort of distance, the times and the distance travelled between all these points, it can generate this estimation of movement capacity, I suppose is the best way to put it. Basically, how fast could the animal have gotten from point A to point B? Could have been going slow, could have been going fast, but it has this this estimate of how how much the animal would have deviated from just a straight line from point A to point B. If it's a very short amount of time, it's probably taken quite a straight route and therefore the heat map's going to be quite tight and in a straight line between point A and point B. If it's a longer period of time, the animal could have gone more places while we weren't looking. And so it's going to make a larger, sort of gentler heat map of all the places the animal could have gone. So it does have this, it does take into account time and distance and therefore this this animal speed aspect to estimate how far the animal could have gone when you weren't looking. I mean... Does that sort of capture it? That's a fantastic explanation. And I think, um, 
Yeah, just like the fundamental nature of considering the fact that these points are related and also that time exists. I mean, it's not hard yeah. to make a case for this being superior, is it? No, and I think the other nice aspect to it is it's not treating all the points um, like they're the same thing. So the regular Brownian bridge movement models, they have one movement capacity for the entire time period. The dynamic Brownian bridge movement models allow this estimation to change over time. So let's say you have an animal that's, you know, it's got this foraging, resting pattern that we have in reptiles. The dynamic Brownian bridges will sort of take that into account and it's going to lower the movement capacity during that period of sheltering. So if there's very small little moves, it's going to be, okay, well, the animal was was resting in its previ- in its current state, therefore it wouldn't have gone as far. But when it's in a big sort of fast-moving active foraging mode, it's going to boost up that uh, estimate of how far the animal could have gone for that time period. And it will change that dynamically throughout the entire, uh, through the, you know, your, your study period, your tracking period. Right which on. is It's yeah, exciting. Which is awesome. So you put it's in... It's exciting yeah. that it can do that. Yeah, it's like next level. Well, it help, helps it be a little bit more robust against these inconsistencies when you're out in the field and, okay, I've missed a day. It, it can help limit the impact there. If the animal was staying in the same place, well, you know, it's, it's, it's getting that. It's taking into account that you've missed a day, so it will change the uncertainty accordingly. Mm. And that, so it does, I think that's what's, what's sort of helping out there as well. Yeah, and you know, missing a day happens when you're tracking reptiles. Some of the time you just can't find them. Absolutely. Someone trips yeah. over, go, go get a little bandage on, you know, you can't get, you can't, it can't be that consistent, but... Um, yeah, I think all of the above just uh, speaks to kind of like the exciting nature of this being adopted in reptile studies of home range. And uh, yeah, I think it's really cool, mate. So um, yeah, that's, yeah, I'm excited about it. And congratulations on a really cool paper. Yeah, I hope, I, well, I hope people they don't necessarily have to do dynamic Brownian bridges. We're not saying that this is the best method you must use it because um, there are other methods out there. We're more getting at... It's time for reptile stuff to start treating tracking data like tracking data and not like a bunch of points. Because there are, you know, there's, there's autocorrelated kernels and there are uh, like uh, dynamic Brownian bridge movement models with covariates and things like that that take into account environmental factors that skew the random walks and stuff. There's a lot more going on outside with GPS data, which we should probably be drawing upon. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an exciting time because it seems like a lot of these methods can be turned to quite coarse reptile movement data. DBMMs are a good starting point because they're, they're not that much more complicated than kernels. In fact, they're not more complicated than kernels. If anything, they're easier to understand, in, in, in my opinion. That's what we like. This, this... That's what we like. Exactly. Everybody knows how an animal moves, right? And the movement models take are basically operating like an animal may move okay yeah. there's a randomization but you know. yeah i think when it becomes harder doesn't it when you're trying to explain you know for example if you're using kernel density estimates and you're kind of crowbarring a method onto a thing it's hard to kind of like succinctly explain yeah. that some of the time especially if you're writing something up so hopefully with these kind of like more logical methods um it may you know maybe it'll make it a bit easier for some people to understand as well yeah, and at the same time, recognize how field uh, methods or choices in field methods have quite can have quite considerable impacts on your estimations, even if you're using the same method. Right on. So that that is a that is a big deal and a big takeaway from this paper is hey, watch out uh, because your MCP 
if you tracked, you know, four times a day and someone else tracked one times a week, one time a week, and you think, okay, I can compare them. We track the animals for the same amount of time. Those differences or similarities, they might be completely spurious. So I don't know. It's it's a it's it's a bit of a warning about old methods too, and perhaps the sensitivity of those old methods to uh, things which are partly outside of your control when it comes to tracking regime, or certainly stuff you have to be aware of when you're comparing studies. Yeah. There we go. I hope people find it useful. <laughs> yeah, mate. And from resolving mysteries surrounding the home ranges of reptiles to resolving the mystery of what is that nice lizard in the Pacific lowlands of Guerrero, Mexico, we move on to our species of the bi-week. Oh, yes. So this is uh, a new species of Lepidophyma from the Pacific lowlands of Guerrero, Mexico, published in the Journal of Herpetology by Palacios Aguilar Santos Bibiano and Flores Villea. So yeah, back to night lizards. And there has, by some stroke of luck, we were asked to do a night lizard episode. There's been a new species of night lizard described in the last couple of years. And it's of the genus Lepidophyma, which, as I mentioned earlier on, is the genus which is actually found in Central America. And yeah, this genus... Lepidophyma is particularly species rich in Mexico. We've talked about quite a few newly described species from Mexico quite recently. Um, Mexico is a real hotspot for the diversity of reptiles. And of 19 species in Lepidophyma, 15 are actually endemic to Mexico. And often, as is the case with so many cool new lizards, their distributions are restricted to a particular mountain range. So, you know, these kind mm. of sky islands. Micro-endemic. Exactly, yeah. They've got each one of these mountain ranges might have its own endemic lizard, which has been isolated for goodness knows how long and evolved into something quite unique and, uh, yeah, specific to that region. And this is actually um, a family, Xanthusidae, the night lizards at large. They're kind of famous for being like micro endemics or at least exploiting like very particular microhabitat niches so like some of them like mm. rotten logs some of them like like little rock crevices um you know they're all about that kind of like small scale existence and yeah this team of herpetologists were looking at museum specimens and also conducting field work in mexico and they found a series of large night lizards from this area in Guerrero, which is a well-known endemism hotspot as it is. And they made comparisons with other species. And uh, yeah, sure enough, they were like, well, this is a new one. And they've described it in this paper. And they've called it Lepidophyma inagoi. Yes, which is named after somebody, right? Named after somebody, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ivan Nava Gonzalez, sadly passed away in late December 2014, uh, which is a shame. Um, but yeah, there's a lizard now. And yeah, it's from tropical deciduous forest, which looks very nice. You know, some nice rocks. <laughs> um, doesn't it look good, though? It looks like sort of... It does. Cool. And the lizard's making use of those rocks, isn't it? Right. It's Saxicolus. Oh, say it again. Saxicolus. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Saxicolus. Little rock dweller. Yeah. 
That is what Saxicolis means, right? It's a little rock dweller? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Saxy. So. Colus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's apparently. Decent stri- size. Decent size. Decent size, too. Decent. You said they were large. What large. are we talking? We're talking. You're the size guy. Ooh, like 10 to 12, 10 to 21. No, they're tails. What am I looking at? No, that's total length. Maybe it's tail length. It's total length. No, it's tail length. Oh my gosh, TL is, TL, is should be outlawed. It's, it's um, it needs to be contextualized by the other let's, one. Let's just work with SBL. Yes. Right. Smallest one was fifty-five uh, millimeters. Largest one, hundred and six. So one hundred and six so, ten centimeters without the tail. It's a big. One hundred and six SBL. Yeah, and then that one had a tail of ninety-six. So big tails on these guys. Mm. Tails longer than the body. Yeah, I love it. They spend their days inside caves formed by large granitic boulders, and during the afternoon and night, they apparently shift to the cave entrances. Um, doesn't say when when they're eat hunting. Some bugs. Say again. And eat some bugs, right? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it sounds like it. You know, things which hang around in caves generally uh, eating a few little bugs. And yes, it does say they infer a uh, insectivorous diet. But uh, yeah, it might be omnivorous. I mean, you know, other members of the family are closely related species. L. smithii is also a vegetation nibbler. So um, yeah, it could be. I feel like they are. it tends to be the case that a lot of species tend to be uh, or tend to have a wider diet than we're aware of. Yeah. Because you're working on you know, actually detecting when they're eating something and detecting what that was. So exactly, and all, um, always opt for thinking it's larger. Yeah, and Lepidophyma inagoi. I mean, it's just a cool little lizard, really. I mean, it's not particularly mm-hmm. uh, groundbreaking. It's quite dark coloured. They've got really nice scalation on their backs, though. They've got like a kind of series of rows of large, like tubercle-looking chunks, and that they extend down the flanks as well, and then kind of like a mottled orangey neck and face. Um, and yeah, same like heavily built head yeah. that we were talking about with um, the island night lizards. Uh, yes. They almost look like the scalation, I don't know, they've, they've got something sort of, um, there's almost something like resemblance of like a crocodile monitor in the shape of that head. Just looks like powerful, you know, despite the fact that they're small. And yeah, yeah it's, that, it's that big neck. It implies big bite force or something, doesn't it? Or at least that's where my mind goes. It does, Even yeah. Even if that's not the case, it, it, it has that connotation. Yeah, they look dangerous. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just a neat little lizard hanging around, scattering around the rocks in this deciduous forest in Mexico. Um, brand new species, and it's pretty cool. And it's a nice lizard, awesome. which is just ridiculous. Like, how often is it that we're asked to do an episode Got and there's a species lucky. that's been described? <laughs> like, it's so specific. And it's not like it's like, you know, these aren't animals. There's 20 species in this genus. It's not like there's 10 billion. Um, so, yeah, very exciting. And probably, I would imagine, more more to come from Xanthusidae as a family. Uh, certainly not a particularly well-studied um, family. I think it was very difficult to find papers on them. There's been some conservation mm-hmm. genetics, as we've discussed, on the island night lizards. Uh, obviously, their sort of proximity to America always helps in getting studied. Uh, yep. Yeah, yep. certainly the Central American ones and uh, the Cuban night animal is 
quite mysterious insofar as ecological studies are concerned. So, yeah, let's do some more studying them. Well, there's always yeah, there's always more species to find. There's always more to study about the species we already know about. Exactly, exactly. Um, right, have you got any other business? Um, I feel like we do have any other business. If I, I don't specifically have I any do. other business. I have the business that you're concerned about. we got some new Patreons. So hey. big shout outs. Timmy Songer. Big thank you. Hunter Eggers and Brianna Zachary. So big up yourselves. You guys are great. Mm. And yeah, we've already had some like questions and suggestions coming in. So yeah, there's some uh, some rich pickings coming up i do oh, have a bunch of other excellent. any other business like some other little bits i want to discuss but i think i might save it for the next episode actually because we've run quite long and i've got some chit chat to do little bits and bobs yeah yeah so uh I think, no happily i think we've done well i think we've done well really great really great to hear about this dbbmm stuff ben it's super cool like yeah i hope that finally finishes review asap and uh comes out and we can publicize yeah it again. i suspect it will be relatively relatively soon yeah nice one and uh yeah i think all that remains to be said is if you want to get in touch with us if we've got anything wrong or if you want to ask any questions um about the stuff we've been discussing today in particular i suppose uh, ben's the guy to talk about about dbbmms uh you can get in touch with us herphighlights at gmail.com facebook.com slash herphighlights or we are on twitter as well and uh yeah i haven't said it for ages if you want to leave us a review that's wicked it helps loads i think that's what everyone says. <laughs> <laughs> we're pretty Allegedly. high though. Like we get suggested on Apple Podcasts. Like if you look at if you Ooh. look at nature, like we're up there. We're in the top sixteen, which is pretty cool. So yeah, that is pretty cool. Leave us a review. Make us bigger. Help us to get celebrity status. <laughs> <laughs> and with whatever benefits comes with that. Yeah. I can't imagine this. Ah, I don't know. Being a celebrity <laughs> would be fresh hell. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. Catch people in two weeks' time, most likely. Yeah, or less, because uh, I'm planning on doing some podcast recording. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it'll come oh, out. We're probably... Anyway, we can talk about this off air. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>